All right, so the Bible adventure we're going to be going on this morning is going to start in Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. That is on page 707, the very end of page 707, right here in the bottom corner. All right, so Mark 10, 42 to 45. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Jesus called the disciples together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today marks the second Sunday um, during uh, the Lenten season. And as a church, we are going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, um, the different petitions of the Lord's Prayer, going through um, petition by petition, and hoping that that will shape not only how we pray, but also how we live. So last week, Pastor Chris unpacked the first few lines for us, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we talked about how these first words really should shape our view of God because they reveal God's character to us. And that's really what the focus was last week, was God's character. How his character affects the way we live and the way we pray. This week, we're going to be looking at kingdom, specifically what kingdom means and how kingdom should shape the way that we live and pray. Now this, thing of, this theme of kingdom is so, I mean, it's this entire book really, in one way or another, is pointing to the kingdom of God. This is such a vast theme in the scriptures that we're going to be also talking about kingdom next week. So you'll be hearing from me and then again from Pastor Chris next week. And so we divided it up. And so I'm, I'm just going to be focusing on three short words this morning. Sh- short but very powerful words. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's just three words. But there's so much depth to these words. This morning, we're going to be focusing on how we can reflect those words. How can we reflect God's kingdom on this earth? Because that's what it means. Your kingdom come. We, we have to reflect God's kingdom to the people around us. I believe reflecting God's kingdom, we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional about the way, the way we act, the way we live. But we have to be intentional first about seeking our guidance from the Lord. We have to be intentional about focusing our minds and hearts on God's kingdom so that we we can respond and reflect Christ with our words and actions. But first, if we're going to be looking at kingdom, it's important, I think, that we define what kingdom looks like. And to do this, I want to look at a few different kingdoms in the scriptures with a few different kings. Specifically, we're going to be looking at three kings of Israel, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then we're going to juxtapose that with the kingship that Jesus brought. Because really we're going to see with these human kings that we're just humans, not, not fully man, fully man, but not fully God. We're going to see with these humans that there was often times where they, they just want to expand, they just wanted to expand their own kingdom, their personal, the kingdom of self. With Jesus, we'll see the perfect reflection of God's kingdom. So a little backstory. Israel is stuck in captivity in Egypt, and then God finally brings them out. And even after all these amazing things that God does, I mean, he, 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 
he does all these plays in Egypt to, to force them out, and then he, he parts the Red Sea so they can escape, and then they're hungry in the desert, so he, he brings manna from heaven. He does so much for these people. But even still, they still disobey him and end up having to wander around in the desert for 40 years. If after those 40 years, God finally brings them in to this promised land, and then they live happily ever after. Wait, that's not right. <laughs> No, after, after just a little while, Israel once again just starts becoming unsatisfied, even with the promised land. And at this point, they're under the direction of a God-fearing prophet named Samuel, and they're getting a little bit tired of having this, this prayer warrior tell them what they should be doing. And so they basically give Samuel the boot, and they say, you know, all these kingdoms around us, they have a king. We want a king. And Samuel is like, well, wait a minute. God, this is God's kingdom. You're God's chosen nation. God's your king. They say, no, we want a human king. That's better than God. Who knows what they were thinking. So Samuel, Samuel warns them, you know, if, if you have a human king, he's, he's never going to live up to the way God has, has poured out his favor on you, the way God has provided for you every step of the way. But they say, you know what? We want a human king because that human king will lead us into battle and that's really important to us. So God's like, all right, fine. God relents. He says, you know what? If you're gonna reject me, okay, here. We'll pick this guy. We'll pick, we'll pick this guy named Saul. He's the head taller than everybody else. He's the most handsome man in all of Israel. And he comes from a wealthy family. I mean, really, on the surface, looks like a great king, right? I think the royal baby would approve this king. But in the same way that the nation of Israel constantly falls away from obeying God, Saul tries to take a specific command from God and put his own personal spin on it, which is red flag number one. See, at one point, God commands Saul, he says, hey, I want you to, to destroy these uh, Amalekites. I want you to destroy all that belongs to them, their sheep, their cattle, everything. And the reason is because the Amalekites were a nation that while Israel was escaping Egypt, Amalekites mugged them. And, and attack them. And so God tells Moses way back in Exodus, says, hey, write this down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I promise that I'll, I, will, I will judge the Amalekites for what they did to you guys. And so this is God keeping his promise to Moses. He says, Saul, I want you to completely blot them out so this past promise I made will, will come to fruition and so that the Amalekites will no longer be a threat in future generations. But Saul, he has a better idea. Or at least so he thinks. Red flag number two. Instead of following God's exact commands, Saul takes the enemy king captive and he spares their best sheep and their best cattle to offer a sacrifice to God. That doesn't seem so bad, right? I mean, that seems actually kind of cool. He's thinking about, you know, sacrificing to God and how, he, needs, how he, he wants to do this and stuff. But the problem isn't what Saul did. The problem is that Saul directly disobeyed a specific command from God. And it was because God doesn't need sacrifices. That's what, that's what God tells Saul. He's like, I don't, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't need those sacrifices. I want your obedience. I want you to obey what I told you to do. And so because Saul rejects God's command, God rejects Saul. Saul tries to repent, but he just keeps on trying to make, to make things better by using his own strength and ideas. He starts becoming a madman because he's trying his hardest to expand God's kingdom when in actuality he's only 
expanding his own personal kingdom, the kingdom of self, the kingdom of Saul. God wanted so badly to use Saul to reflect his kingdom, but instead, Saul took his eyes off of God's kingdom and affixed them on the kingdom of the world. So now, because of that, God wants to anoint a new king. So he goes back to Samuel. He says, I want you to go to this guy Jesse's house, and I want you to anoint one of his seven sons as king. So Samuel goes over, Jesse comes in. He's like, all right, I'm going to bring you my firstborn. Firstborn comes in. He's strong. He's healthy. He's fit. He's good looking. And Samuel says, oh, this has got to be the guy, right? This has got to be the guy. God, is this the guy? No. No, this is not the guy. Don't you remember what happened with Saul? Saul had a great outward appearance too, but God, God tells Samuel, that's not what I look at. Humans look at the outside. God looks at the heart. God looks at the inside. So Samuel says, okay, God's saying no. So Jesse calls in his second son. No. Third son, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, all knows. So Samuel's probably looking around like, is there anybody left? I don't see anyone here. Jesse says, well, I got David out back. He's, he's tending to the sheep. They bring David in, the youngest, the last person that Jesse expects. And God says, that's my guy. That's the next king. I want you to anoint him. I mean, really, what a perfect representation of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's the last person that we expect, the last person Samuel expects even, the last person his own father Jesse expects, David, ends up being God's anointed one, the one that God wants to be his next king, his representative to the people, the next person to reflect his kingdom. So Samuel anoints David, and after escaping multiple murder attempts from Saul, because Saul didn't want to give up the kingdom, David takes the throne once Saul dies in battle. Now the Lord himself calls David a man after his own heart. So surely David is going to be perfect at reflecting the kingdom, right? But we know even David, God's chosen king, is flawed. For most of his life, David does a great job reflecting God's kingdom, both in battle and as Israel's leader. But there's one fateful night. He sees a married woman bathing. He succumbs to his lust for her. He gets her pregnant, and then he, he kills her husband to try to cover up his tracks. Even David, a cornerstone of the bloodline of the Messiah, loses sight of God's kingdom and got caught up in furthering his own personal kingdom by giving in to this selfish sin. Now, God rebukes David, and David spends so much time, I mean, weeks, just on his face in mourning and repentance. So God says, I've taken your sin away and spared your life, but the son that was conceived in this sin, he's going to die because of what you did. You have too much blood on your hands now too, so that temple that I want you to build for me, I'm going to take that away from you and give it to one of your sons. On top of that, your kingdom is going to be in chaos for the rest of your life because your sons are going to try to rip the throne from you. So David lives out the rest of his days in repentance and he turned away from his sin and he, he, did, he, tried, he, he did everything he could to reflect God's, God's kingdom again. But that was amidst these consequences that he faced, amidst his sons trying to take the kingdom away from him. Even David, God's chosen king, the one God handpicked, even he momentarily lost sight of God's kingdom at one point in his life. Now near the end of David's kingship, 
His sons are fighting, all fighting for the throne. One saying, I want to be king. No, saying, no, I'm king. So David, he, he goes to his son Solomon, the one he promised, he promised the kingship to. He says, okay, I'm, God is anointing you king. But before he dies, David make, makes a charge to Solomon. He says, I want you to be faithful and obey the Lord all of your days. Because David, David experienced what it was like disobeying and turning from God, and he doesn't want Solomon to fall into the same trap. And so at the beginning of Solomon's, of Solomon's reign, he takes heed to what David says. He, he rules really well, really faithfully, and he reflects God's kingdom well. So much so that God says, hey, you're doing such a great job. He come, God comes to him in a dream and says, you're doing so well that anything that you ask me, I'll give it to you. What do you want? And Solomon says, I want to be a better ruler. I want to be, give, please give me wisdom so that I can lead your people better. And God is so stoked on that that he says, oh, I'm going to give you that, but I'm also going to give you wealth and honor. And so Solomon begins to rule, and he's extremely wise. He very quickly becomes the wisest, most powerful, and wealthiest man in the entire earth at this point. He became so famous that people were giving glory to God because of, of, of Solomon's great wisdom. And additionally, Solomon, be, Solomon begins to start building the temple for the Lord. He builds it, he brings the ark in, and then he prays the dedication over it. And then he, he even gets to build a, an ornate palace for himself. I mean, from, he's, he's reflecting the God's kingdom, but then even, even in the world's eyes, I mean, this guy's probably got it all, right? God gives Solomon everything that he promised him, but even after all of that, Solomon still stumbles. He begins to marry foreign wives and worship, start, starts to worship their false god. He, he ends up marrying, he has 700 wives, 700 wives, and if that's not enough, he has 300 concubines on top of that. And as he grows old, these wives that are worshiping false gods they start to turn Solomon's eyes, turn his heart away from the true God and towards these false gods. So even after all of, the, all of this worldly wealth, I mean, in, in the world's eyes, he had it all. Even still, the Lord poured out so much favor on him and even still, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Solomon still turned his eyes away from the kingdom of God and began to try to further his own kingdom. And because of this, God raises up adversaries against Solomon. And essentially, at this point, the kingship of Israel just crumbles because these are three of the best kings that Israel has ever had. And then evil kings come up, come to power, and then turn the whole nation of Israel's eyes away from the Father. These three men, three of Israel's best kings, didn't cut it. They each took their eyes off God and tried to further the kingdom of self, rather than the kingdom of heaven. Israel thought they needed a, a human king. They thought that that would answer all of their problems, solve all their problems. But because of that, their nation crumbles away, and they get sent into exile. And now they need an anointed, perfect king to redeem them. Enter Jesus Jesus was born a king. He didn't have a kingly birth. He probably had one of the most humble births a king has ever had on this earth. But he was born a king. I mean, he had his star in the east. The wise men came to worship him as a king. They gave him kingly gifts. I mean, we have God coming to earth as a man, effectively bringing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, down to earth. 
So what immediately happens? What does the kingdom of the world do in response? Well, King Herod is so afraid of this king that he, 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 tells, he tells his people to go and kill every single newborn son under the age of two in Bethlehem. Because he's so afraid of this king, this king of heaven. And the fallen kingdom of the world instantly goes to battle with this new king of heaven. And then when Jesus grows up, Satan meets him out in the wilderness and tempts him with things of the earth. And of all things, he tempts him with kingdoms of the world. But Jesus never takes his eyes off of his father and his father's kingdom. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, he reveals God's kingship in so, his godly kingship in so many ways, through healing, teaching, wisdom, discipling. But Jesus revealed the kingdom of God with such authority, and yet it was unlike any kingdom the world had ever seen before. Because unlike the kingdoms of this world, it wasn't a kingdom of power or pride or riches. The kingdom Jesus was bringing and teaching about was a kingdom of humility and service, love and respect, even poverty and grace. I mean, just think about when he touches the man that has leprosy, when he touches the untouchable. I mean, what an absolutely incredible, intentional way of reflecting the kingdom of God to that man and the people that we're witnessing. But Jesus, I mean, you'll catch his sickness. Don't touch him. That's what the kingdom of the world said to him. But the kingdom of God says, it doesn't matter if you're sick. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your past is. I love you. And I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to prove it to you by doing what no one else will do. By reaching out and touching the untouchable. I mean, what a beautiful picture of God's kingdom. Because you see, the, the kingdoms of earth, they're founded on our own efforts towards personal success and personal accomplishments. I mean, this was ingrained in people like the Pharisees during Jesus' time. They worked their whole lives following the letter of the law. And that meant that they held status and power in the Jewish church. But Jesus came and flipped all of that upside down. He came and showed that it's not about the advancement of self, it's about serving others. It's not about putting people under your feet to reach personal success. It's about laying down our lives to wash other people's feet. As we read earlier, Jesus didn't come to earth to be served. The one person worthy to be served in humanity didn't come to earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was truly the perfect reflection of the kingdom of God. The incredible, the incredible thing for us, church, is that when Jesus died and was buried, rose again, and then ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit to live in us. We have the DNA of heaven living in us. God's kingdom is here. We have eternity living in our hearts. We have access to the presence of the glory of God always. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. And to have abundant life, we, we do this by reflecting God's kingdom daily in our lives. If we're busy trying to expand our own kingdom, I mean, we may, it may look like we have an abundant life to the world's eyes but we're going to be living an impoverished life in the eyes of God. 
I mean, look at the example of the rich young ruler we have in, in the scriptures. He's a man that wants to follow Jesus, and he's followed all of the Jewish laws since, since he was a child. But when Jesus points out there's one thing that he lacks, that he's holding too firmly to his personal wealth, he can't let it go. He says, Jesus, you can have all of my kingdom except this one part. That's mine. And he turns and he walks away. The kingdom of God calls us to let go of our personal kingdoms. To die to ourselves so that we can pick up our cross and follow Jesus. But this takes intentionality to respond to God's call in every aspect of our lives to live the way Jesus did. And that's hard to do. It's hard because we've become such a reactionary people. Because this world tells us to look out for ourselves and only ourselves. This is my kingdom. Someone cuts me off on the freeway, you're invading my kingdom. I see a homeless person asking for money, I look away because this is my kingdom. I've worked hard for this. I don't want to let any of it go. I can only further my kingdom at the expense of others. And I can only further God's kingdom at the expense of myself. And that's the crux here, folks. I, I can only further my kingdom at the expense of other people. But I can only further the Father's kingdom at the expense of myself. I can either stop running after the kingdoms of the world to participate in Jesus' kingdom, or I can be like the rich young ruler. And I can walk away from Jesus to maintain my place in the world. The rich young ruler didn't want to let go of his wealth. And when I read that story, I always think, what would be the things that Jesus would ask me to let go of in order to follow him? And that's a dangerous question for us to ask because Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what those things are. He knew what those things were for the rich young ruler. He knows what those things are for us. And he's not afraid to tell us. But if we truly want to reflect God's kingdom, what are the things we need to let go of in order to be a better light in this world? I mean, Jesus will show us the ways in our lives if we're tr- that we're trying to be king instead of him. The ways that we are trying to be king instead of him. Because you see, church, when, when we pray your kingdom come, we affirm God as king. And if God is a king, we can't be king. But the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God that that doesn't mean we're just some wandering peasants. God says we're children. We're his children. That means we're children of the king. And that means that we're heirs in the kingdom. I mean, God has given us the kingdom and we're called to reflect it to the world. So when we pray your kingdom come, it's not just to look ahead to the future of Jesus coming back. That's part of it. But it's also a participation right now. Because when I live intentionally with the kingdom of God and eternity in focus, the Lord empowers me to be able to participate in Jesus' kingdom by reflecting him in everything that I say and everything that I do. We are called to bring glory to God and be lights in the world. That's what it means to reflect God's kingdom. And that's what I want to challenge us with this week, myself absolutely included. As we pray this specific petition, your kingdom come, your kingdom come throughout the week and beyond, let's ask the Lord what are specific ways he wants us to reflect his kingdom.
your kingdom come? What are, what are things I need to let go of for your kingdom to truly come? What are your purposes for me today? And how can I reflect your kingdom in those, purpose, those purposes? See, Jesus was always getting his guidance from the Father through prayer. And we must look at the person of Jesus and take our examples from him. Jesus spent nights, sleepless nights in prayer. I can't imagine how tired Jesus must have been. But we're called to take our example from him. Perhaps for me, perhaps instead of cursing at people when they cut me off, what if I bless them? What if instead of gossiping about someone behind their back, what if I try to find a way I can serve them? Or instead of turning away from the homeless man, what if, what if I reached out to give? I mean, there are ways our community is already doing this. I mean, I think about the Good News Ministry and the way they reflect the kingdom to the homeless. Or I think about Habitat for Humanity and, and our partnership with them here and in Nicaragua. I think about Operation Christmas Child and when we bring boxes, uh, gifts for, for kids around the world that won't, won't get a Christmas present. And then we go to the warehouse and we box them up and prepare them to be shipped. I mean, there are ways our community is certainly reflecting the kingdom of God and it's, it's beautiful. But let's do more. Let's ask God, what else can we do? Let's pray for more. Now, the revivalist Leonard Ravenhill, he often said, five minutes inside of eternity, I believe every single one of us will have wished that we had sacrificed more, that we had prayed more, loved more, sweated more, grieved more, wept more. Let's start now, church. What else can we be doing? There are things that we are doing that is reflecting God's kingdom. What else can we do? The first step in beginning to reflect the kingdom of God in more ways is by becoming more intentionally responsive to the ways the Lord is telling us to reflect his kingdom. It's stepping back and responding to the ways the Lord is showing us to be a light for his kingdom. We must keep heaven and eternity in focus. Because Jesus, Jesus was the most intentional, kingdom-minded person to ever walk this earth. I mean, every time he breathed, spoke, prayed, or acted, he was reflecting his Father, our Father. That, that's what our call is, church. Not in some things, but in everything. And so may we take Jesus' example, Jesus' perfect example of reflecting the kingdom and apply it to our own lives. And may we hold nothing back, church. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Amen.